Okay, questions? Don. You referenced the uh, verse in First uh, Corinthians six nineteen. Um, that that's speaking of our physical body, not metaphorically as as our ourself or our our spirit also. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that's significant that. Often we, we think more in our spiritual life about our, our spirit. Yeah. But our, our physical body is just as much Us. God's yeah. as, as that. And how, no. we, how we care for it, uh, whether that's sleep or our diet or exercise, whatever, yeah. is, is important too. No, in fact, if you guys want to turn to 1 Corinthians 6... Um, as best as we can sort of reverse engineer what's going on, it's it's Platonism creeping into the church. So uh, first, Platonism, Platonism, Plato, and his this insistence that the physical world is the throwaway husk, the unimportant, the insignificant, the fundamentally flawed, and the the world of spirit and thought and of the forms is what matters. Well, interestingly, two different opposite errors were brought in from that same premise. One, therefore, it doesn't matter who I sleep with because it's just my body. And what do you do when you're in these broken, limited bodies? And then you got in chapter seven, the people who think who are married, who think it's holier to sleep in separate beds because wouldn't it be more holy? You know, that's sort of the, the, the incipient where Roman Catholicism is going to go with, with priestly celibacy. And they both come out of this view of the unimportance, the insignificance of the material as opposed to the spiritual. So in 1 Corinthians 6, we've got their argument, their slogan. The ESV puts it in quotes, and I think this is right. Paul's quoting their slogan back to them, the slogan of the faction. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then their next slogan, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. So they add together on the one hand, I'm free from the law, all things are, I'm not under the law, and food for the stomach, stomach for food. The argument seems to be something like, we don't view the intrinsic relationship between our body's physical appetite for food and the, the satisfying of that as a hugely significant moral issue. We, we do if there's gluttony involved, but, but the basic issue that I'm hungry and eating has some sustenance, is, they're saying is, is, is a relatively insignificant issue. So if that's the case with food for the stomach, then my body has this other appetite. My body has this other desire. Therefore, it's equally insignificant how I fulfill that. That, that seems to be what the argument they're saying. The reason why I say that is because Paul could simply just be like, stop it, you wicked people, repent. And he actually, by his answer dismantles their view and by his answer helps us understand what their view was as you sort of try to reverse engineer it. So as best as I can figure out, that's what their argument is. Something along those lines. Um, so they say, uh, all things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. So Paul recognizes that the intrinsic relationship between hunger and eating will end. 
in the resurrection, when we eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it will not be because if we don't eat, we'll grow faint and die. That the relationship between a growing hunger into weakness and possibly even death to food will be broken. It's a temporary relationship. That won't be why we're eating. However, Paul makes it clear, that is not, all appetites are not the same. Um, the body is not meant for sexual morality. And then here's the sort of shocking statement for the Neoplatonist, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Well, what do you mean? It's my soul. No, 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 no. God made you and I ensouled bodies or embodied souls, however you want to say it. We are the union of soul and body. That, that is who and what we are. And we are for the Lord and the Lord is for us, including our bodies. And for, for someone... And this happens, I mean, I, I hear this stuff show up in the church nowadays. This is just my earth suit. This is just my throwaway husk. Like, no, God's going to raise your body too and reunite the two. There is a sense in which when you die, if you die before the Lord returns, the greater weight goes with your soul. We see souls under the throne of God in Revelation 5 who are able to communicate and speak even while their bodies are in the grave. So there does seem to be greater weight to the soul, but to press it and just say, therefore, all that matters is what's spiritual is completely um, missing the point biblically of the goodness of creation and that Jesus was raised physically and not spiritually only from the dead. And so then he goes on to make the point um, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Which is to say, your body is a holy temple. The Holy Spirit is taking up residence in you. And presuming you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is inside of you while you are joined to a prostitute. How horrifically blasphemous is that so stop it he says but he does it by making it clear now god is for your body and your body is for the lord your body's not made for sexual morality your body is made for the lord therefore glorify god in your body um our soul yeah yes amen yes mm. Excuse me. Okay. No, it's interesting. In First Corinthians, Paul makes two different applications of the temple. One is the corporate application. I want to turn to chapter three. I want to look at it just a little more there. And here's the individual one. So when you think of Jesus and his zeal for holiness and worship in John 2, the application for us is not, we better make sure we have this building painted. We are the temple. And so what does holiness and right worship mean in that context? That's That would be the application, would be, no, Jesus is very concerned about the holiness of God's temple. So in 1 Corinthians 3, he's dealing with leaders who might lead well, build well, or build poorly. Um, so starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay any foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, <clears throat> if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Now, in reality, he's got three options. 
You can build poorly, you can build well, or you can try to tear it down. 16 is where he's going to deal with the tearing it down. So the three outcomes. Paul is the church planter. Paul came and, and preached the gospel to them. And Apollos is now feeding, teaching, watering this church plant. Apollos is the, so, so in the metaphor, he laid the foundation and now another is building on top of it. And this, this is all tracing back to their factionisms where some people are saying, I'm of Paul and others, I'm of Apollos. And the really holy ones were like, I'm of Jesus. And, you know, and he's like, look, guys, Christ is not divided. Stop it. <laughs> and he's trying to now show them how to rightly view these leaders. Um, and that's where he says, verse five, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Slaves through whom you believed. It's the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. We're doing the same work, Apollos and me, Paul saying. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. If we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And then he talks about the work he did according to the grace of God I built. And then verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So in this context, the ones are builders of the church and Apollos is building and he's saying, look, Apollos is going to be, have his work judged just as I'm going to have my work judged. And depending on the quality of the work will be the quality of the reward. And if, if most of it turns out to be poorly built, not much work went into it. You're building with cardboard and hay and straw. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna smell the smoke when you get to heaven. <laughs> he says you're gonna escape us through fire. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound like a good thing. Others who build with costly stones and gold and silver are gonna be rewarded. So so there's this spectrum of reward equal to how you're building. And the people building here are leaders in the church, right? Um, verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. <coughs> so poor quality work, but work that is not meant to destroy, still gets some sort of reward and you're fine. But then we turn in 16 to those who might actually tear down, those who actually might, like elsewhere Paul says, wolves secretly sneaking in among you. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Whoa. Now we're not talking about a, a, a gradient of rewards. Now we're talking about God's jealous and zealous at anyone who would try to tear down his church. Um, so, that, so those are the two applications of the holiness of the church. Labor well. Don't labor in the church half-heartedly. Don't g give God your best and your, your first and work hard at building his church up because we, we all have this work of ministry ephesians 4 we speak the truth in love the church builds itself up in love and so that's what we should be doing and there's a strong warning to those who would tear it down those who would who would try to destroy it god's going to destroy so that's one application of god zealously cares about the holiness and the purity of his church and then individually it's don't sleep with prostitutes, glorify God with your body, because, again, God cares about his church's holiness. So at the individual level and at the corporate level, God's still passionate about the purity and holiness of his church. Don wants to follow up. Again, like you mentioned, the, the, 
the body is used in two different ways. I think the, the focus in the, the Corinthians passage, six, chapter 6, mm. is, our again, our physical body. Yeah. Again, if you go to verse 20, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So he's viewing them separately, but together. Um, so... Your translation is and in your spirit? Yes. Okay. Mine does not. What are you reading from? King James. Oh, okay. Okay. That, that, I'll look into that. I uh, Mine just says glorify God in your body. So. Okay. No, no. You, King James might be right on that. I just got to look it up. And fair enough. No, the, the significance of what we do and how we do it is is uh, greatly significant. Yeah. Um. Jake. To people who, another argument about the, the body is the importance of the body in this life. Bodies don't get lost. They get resurrected. I'm reminded of like at the end of is that Revelation 20, the sea will give up her dead. Like it's an incalculable number of people who've been lost at sea over history. People that are gone in all but memory hundreds, thousands of years ago. And the number is just, it's hard to even fathom. And the idea that those people are not lost, they will be seen again when you know yeah. at the end of days so the bodies bodies don't get lost they get resurrected so and everyone the the just and the unjust get resurrected amen so even though we may be separated from our bodies for a time it'll be a blip on the radar compared to eternity where everyone's resurrected every soul and every body is reunited and then things go on yeah okay any other uh Thoughts or questions with this? I'll, I'll confess, I have no idea how... To, to me, I wish John had given more explanation on how he cleansed the temple. I mean, with our guesstimates, and John doesn't give us the numbers, by our guesstimates, there could be like a million people in Jerusalem, easily. Um, I mean, this would be something akin to cleansing the uh what's the what's the what's the what Cle cleansing the state fair or the wells fargo arena or something i mean it it's crazy what he's able to do and that you'd think humanly speaking we know there's temple guards that nobody arrests him that nobody No, no, that, that could be it. Later in John's gospel, we're just going to see the other possibility. I mean, I was listening to John MacArthur, and John MacArthur thinks this is a miracle. He's the only way to explain it. Maybe. Um, it's, a, it's a display of power. The, the, the rightness of Jesus' rebuke, his holy anger drives people away. And when he tells them, stop it and get out, this is the same one who crawls to Lazarus and Lazarus walks out of the tomb. This is the same one who, when they come to arrest him, fall on their faces as if dead. So so I'm not sure what accounts for how he is able to clear that many people. The text says he got rid of them all. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, it, it hit me though that the first group of people the Messiah fights are his worshipers. <laughs> Our, our unholy worshipers like they're waiting for the messiah to come fight rome and he comes and picks a you know and he's striving against them in the temple but but that's the, there's a there's a typo in the, the insert it's not second peter um it's not second peter 
No, no, it's not second. It's First Peter four seventeen, which says, um, "It is time for judgment to begin in the house of God." If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, so Peter's point is, yes, God will judge the world, but it starts with his people. It starts with us. Um, you know, and, and I think in the last few years, we've seen the Lord sift and refine his church. There's been whole denominations that just have been dumpster fires. But there's a refining process in it. There's been there's been leaven in the loaf, and the Lord's exposing it and dealing with it, removing it, both case by case, individually within a body and, and in larger scopes. But because God cares about the holiness of His people, and you know we want Him to go deal with the Democrats or whatever. He's like, nah, I'm gonna deal with you. Um, yeah, that's there's nothing new there. Yeah, Lee, hold on. This is just more of an aside because I I was reading this. Uh, particular section be during the week and I looked up I always like to look up pictures of like the the temple and uh, Herod's the court of the Gentiles was huge yeah. and that they had part of the temple was built for uh, government services like doing uh, judgments and things yeah. and the other thing is that they had their own uh, coins temple coins so you couldn't have had the right coins you would have had to use the money changers right. and uh, so I'm, I'm just assuming, my question is, where would people go to buy these things? There probably would have just been stalls around the temple. But well, not. we know that most of the lambs, many of the lambs were raised in Jerusalem. So, I mean, you could yeah. have, we know Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on a hill, but there's other hills, there's valleys. There's also, I mean, there's place, there's yeah. space yeah. where they could have done it. It would be a little less convenient. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to maybe take a half hour walk outside of Jerusalem to get to the place where the lambs were. The money changers presumably would take up less space. And so maybe it's just a house down the street, yeah. but you could, but you can see how quickly and easily just the pragmatism of, yeah. And part of it was also that they the commentary suggested that people would take their they would have raised their lambs at home, and perhaps then sold that perfect good number one quality lamb for the certain amount of money, taken that to. Jerusalem then to buy a lamb because like you said about traveling right. Right. you would uh, possibly injure the beast and it wouldn't be any good and right so it was it's kind of interesting yeah. well and, and that's where like well and that's where because in the other the other accounts there is hints of usury and greed and abuse and misuse there's also by saying my house to be a house of prayer and the original quote says for all peoples so in the second cleansing I think you could argue that the text is well not could argue the text clearly brings in the avarice the greed of these money lenders and sellers and it even possibly could show on the light of like why are you guys this because especially in today's sort of world you could see how all the animals and all their dung and all their stink is in the court of the gentiles what does that communicate to the gentiles right right but because john doesn't point to any of that it's simply the exchange in this in this account, since this is a separate event, it's just my father's house. You've turned into a house of trade. There's no further explanation. So I think the simplicity of that's not what this place is for is going on here. Whereas in Matthew and Luke's accounts, um, it this where he does it the second time. So it's not to say that these people aren't taking advantage of people and they aren't be, doing usury. Jesus, in other words, could potentially rebuke them for three things. He's chosen to rebuke them for one thing here, and the other things may be true, or it could be that in the three intervening years, 
things i don't know but it uh it it is uh striking he's simply the fact that this is not what this is place is for um so yeah no oh, zach uh i know you said like the main it seems like the main application was that the temple isn't the place now the temple is our bodies yeah. um but I was just trying to think, like, in kind of the application to, like, worship and, um, like, the corporate gathering. Yeah. Are there things that uh, could that you thought about, like, that could be um, applications of, like, us meeting at church that we could make distract, like, similar to the money changers and the animals that Cer- certainly that we um, might miss, you know, kind of blinded to because we've just grown up with it or something? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Hold on. 1 Corinthians 11. First. First. Um, there's, a, there's a great... No, 10. Sorry. It's either 11 or 10. Hold on. Let me find it here. I think it's 11. Yeah. 11, 18. <coughs> so, 1 Corinthians 11, 18. When you come together as a church, we are a church as we gather. We become a church as we gather. Um, and so we gather to worship the Lord, to praise him, and to, to use our gifts to build each other up. There's holy, serious work to be done. And so, yes, if in our gatherings and in our worship we are not treating that as a holy obligation and responsibility, I think we'd be guilty. If we're being flippant, if, we're, if we are um, bringing in trivialities, if... if I don't want to just pick on other people. You know, if we have like a Snoopy themed Sunday or something, because it's Christmas is coming up, there could be a sense of like, what we're doing is holy. Get this stuff out of here, <laughs> you know, out of the worship or, you know, other, other things that could creep into the worship service. Um, you know, if we had a whole service focused around the American flag, I might have equal concerns about uh, that. What's that doing here in the worship of God? But what we're doing when we come together, we come together as a church. It's not the building, but we are a temple of God. And so how we worship and how we build each other up. And in 1 Corinthians 3, the most immediate thing is the teaching, the instruction, the counsel we give each other, um, is the, the, the ministry of speaking the truth and love to each other seems to be in the first instance what's, what's in view. But no, our worship, yeah. I, I think, I remember, I remember being at, uh, a youth ministry event of local ministry and the band with the tight jeans was singing about Jod. If you've seen an Iowan fake a British accent to sing about Jod, that's how the, that's how God was pronounced. It was like Jod of wonder. No, I'm not even doing it right. It's like, it's like punk British. Jod of, it was like that. It was terrible. And I remember standing there watching this rock show at Hidden Acres and looking at Serena going, Either I am McCall despising the Lord's anointed or they're Nadab and Abihu, but I don't see any third option. Like, like, either, remember when David's dancing in front of the ark and like, okay, either I'm despising something that's good or these people are often up strange fire. I don't get it. This, this, this doesn't seem, <laughs> this, the whole, the whole thing about it was blowing my mind. But, um, yeah, yeah. And churches that are trying to make worship fun, churches that are trying to, you know, um, make worship about us. Oh yeah. All those types of things, corruption coming, but you could also be corruption just from false teaching, you know? Um, 
yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So for for all there's there's any number of ways to 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 fall off the authentic worship, um, but that would be the application for us, which is why having a bake sale. Now I'd say in one sense, if we pause the worship service of the bake sale, to be like, what is that doing in here? Stop. We did the bake sale before. And we pause the, the worship sale after. service. Everyone go and enjoy the bake sale, and then come back and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but the, the Puritans wanted to emphasize this. They didn't call their church buildings church buildings. They called them meeting halls, precisely because they didn't want anyone to think. Well, because they're coming from the high church of the Anglican church with the smells and bells and everything's dressed up. No, and, and there's something beautiful about the exalted architecture. I've been in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It's gorgeous. But eventually it starts taking on this notion that this is a sacred place. Um, no, it's not. And so the Puritans sort of moved to the other end of the stream. We're just going to build four walls and a roof and call it our meeting house and call it good because this building's just a rain shelter. Um, so, yeah. I'm sorry. It is Thanksgiving after all. And as someone, not me, <laughs> pointed out, thank an Anglican because they're the ones who drove the Puritans out of England. <laughs> Hence Thanksgiving. <laughs> Oh, it's a throw, history throwdown. No, history throwdown. It was just a joke. I heard that the other day. I thought it was funny. Right, right. Okay. But no, in the Puritan tradition, I had to say okay. that. Okay. Thanks, Gideon. Okay. Okay. Any other, any other questions on any of that? But, but, let, me, but let me take it one step further. I remember we used to have uh, a choir director and master's uh, Dr. Plue, and he would talk about taking worship and gathering seriously, preparing for it the night before. You know, again, getting back to God's temple is holy, you know, um, and it, we know how we treat matters that we think are weighty and serious, the preparation we give to make sure we get to the doctor on time or other important things that we value. And so, again, there's, there's numbers of ways we can treat God's temple as unholy, and God would have us treat it as holy. So, yeah, that, that's the, the, the connecting and unchanging theme that's true. God's temple is holy, and he's provoked when his people treat it as common. But wouldn't it be more a chance of treating our time together as holy? As a, instead of saying this is, our temple is holy, think of it, because I, I hate to think of how many times I've been to church, come to church arguing or grumpy in the morning with my husband I'm sure no one ever has done that before but anyway I have and then you get here and it's like church then you slap on this phony smile on your face yeah. and yeah and the, but the, the it isn't like you say the rain shelter it's the togetherness the yeah. church being the church together that's what's holy so yeah no 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 absolutely absolutely yeah Nate. Thank you, Jake. You're getting your steps in. That's right. He's getting his steps in. Post-Thanksgiving steps. I just happen to think that uh, I have the New International Version, mm. and in mine, when it talks about um, people being in the temple, it says there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house. Um, Interesting. And then it has a footnote that says, or merchant. Okay. And then also... It's Zechariah 14. Uh, 
Yeah, fourteen twenty-one. I'm tracking them. Uh, sorry. And then it talks about um, Canaanites uh, having a reputation for being notoriously deceitful uh, in their business practices, and and then it became a term to talk about a deceitful person. I'm completely triggered by that um, stereotype. <laughs> that stereotype is mean. Sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I got a token Canaanite friend. Um, I have a token Canaanite friend. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I got it before I start walking to dangerous territory. Yes. 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 Uh, no. I'll have to look that up. That that is that is interesting. That is interesting. They translated as that. Um, any other? So what I so what I tried to sketch out. Let me move down to the second point. Jesus as the temple. What I was trying to sketch out for you. Is um, is briefly is a biblical theology of. So, you guys know the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology. Very, very sh- simply put, systematic theology asks, "What does the Bible say comprehensively? What is the Bible's teaching on angels, sin, God's knowledge, God's holiness?" And in that sense, all the Bible becomes fair game. Just any passage of Scripture can. That's system. That's the systematic of systematic theology. What biblical theology does, which is an equally significant and helpful uh, trend, is studying the fact that the Bible was written in stages, um, that, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch first, and then writings. And so watching how the Bible develops themes over time, watching the progression so a biblical theology might ask a slightly different question. I might ask, how does Joshua take the theme of the holiness of God developed in the books of Moses and develop it? And what you're looking at is movement, development, right? And so tracking this thread of, and this thread of temple as it's developed through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And finally, t- turn to, get, get over to Revelation 20, um, 1. Because the, the, the termination of the temple thread is Revelation 21. And, and so when I said, like, some people call the garden a temple, well, the Bible doesn't call the garden a temple, but the elements of temple seem to be there. If it's not a temple, it's, it's starting to set this picture of a place where God and man meet. God is there, and a place where sin gets dealt with, where, where animals are killed so that the man and woman have, have clothing. And then Moses' tent of meeting. You could even say the, the rough-hewn altars that Abraham and Noah make, um, although the language isn't as precise. But what's clear with Moses' tent of meeting is Moses is meeting with God face-to-face as a, as a man meets with a man. And so here is this place. But the tent of meeting, as they leave Sinai, gets developed and turned into something more innate, and it's the tabernacle now way more complicated, way more involved. And again, what's this, as you're looking at this develop, what, what is Israel learning? God's really holy, and if you want to come, he does want to meet with you face-to-face. He does want to have fellowship with you, but you underestimate how unclean you are, and so he's revealing more and more the hoops you got to go through, the washings you got to, to involve. I mean, a friend of mine said it's, it's like eating, fellowship with God is a black tie affair. Something like that. And so the, you guys know who Nadab and Abihu are that I mentioned earlier? They're the uh, sons of, of Aaron who offered strange fire to the Lord. They decided to express their authentic selves 
and they were they were they were authentic and they followed their heart and they're burned up with fire because god said i told you what i wanted you to do and i didn't want you to do that and i didn't want you to improvise and i didn't want you to um to innovate just just be obedient just do what i told you to do and again we're learning the holiness of god um and then when the tabernacle is set turns into the temple solomon's temple and god's glory comes it's even further the priests are driven out of the building because good grief and so step by step by step we're seeing that the place that's going to enable god and man to meet and we're place where sins can be dealt with is a serious holy thing and then the temple gets destroyed and in ezekiel it is there's it's an interesting thread we could track where in like five steps god's glory departs the temple and in this over like two chapters of Ezekiel. And it's meant to make it clear to Israel that uh, Nebuchadnezzar did not beat Yahweh. Yahweh had left the building before, by the time, by the time Nebuchadnezzar showed up and destroys the temple. Because remember his son or his grandsons got the, the temple vessels that they're having a, a wine party with. Um, and so then they, they rebuild the temple. They come back and Zechariah and Haggai encourage the people to rebuild. And it's, not really. I mean, who knows how big it was? How I mean, we know how big it was with Herod's rebuilding effort, but the original rebuilding would have been small. And there's no mention that God's glory returned, like certainly nothing like what happened with Solomon. And then Jesus shows up and starts talking about the temple of his own body. And if we've been tracking, well, what is it that a temple does? This side of the, once they got the resurrection, they understood. In his body, he bore our sins on the tree. In his body, he made all his man and God to meet. Oh, that's the sense in which he's a temple. Oh, okay. Well, then he ascends into heaven, and now we're the temple because we're his hands and his feet and his arms and legs. We are inviting people. Now, we're not actually accomplishing it, but we're inviting people to meet with man and God. And when we gather together as a church, man and God is in fellowship, and we have the message of reconciliation. We're not accomplishing the dealing with sin, but we're renouncing it. But turn now to Revelation 21. And the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And one of the striking features of it is verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for his temple is the Lord Almighty and the Lamb. And I think what this is trying to communicate is all of creation is temple, in essence. There is no localized place. God is with his people, full stop. And there's no more washings and oblations and courts of entrance to draw near. Yeah, this is a sinless, redeemed creation. Yeah, yeah. We're back to, like in the garden i mean we're back to those types of of of, of we're back to no sun we're, i mean we're back to like the creation account early in in genesis week one we're back to those types of of, of setting um and so in that sense and, and the reason why biblical theology i think is significant is if you're reading through exodus and you get to like eight chapters of the tabernacle code you could think to yourself what do i care i'm not going to build a tabernacle i'm probably not going to see a tabernacle and cool, okay. But if you see tabernacle is, is a step on a path that leads to Solomon's temple, that leads to Zerubbabel's temple, which becomes Herod's temple, which leads to Jesus saying, destroy this temple, which leads to the church as the temple, which leads to a final reconciliation of all things where there is no temple for God is with his people. In that context, I think the tabernacle is pretty neat. It, we're, we're, we're beyond that stage of the thread 
And so, no, we're not going to go out, I mean, unless you want to do it purely as a historical um, research project, you're not going to go build the tabernacle. But this is significant because it's getting us someplace. It's, it's developing a theme and pushing it someplace. Anyway, that that's, um, that's I think, significant. And it helps us understand, well, in what sense is Jesus a temple? When you, you flesh that out, it makes sense. Oh, he's a temple. Um, that makes sense at all? Or any, any questions, any of that? You guys are really talkative today. Um, any other questions? I mean, I guess I could let you guys out early, but people downstairs wouldn't be so happy. What? What, Natalie? Okay. Anything else? Lucas has a question. So, in John 20, it says, Early on the Sunday morning, while it is still dark, when the tomb rolled away, there was a resurrection on John 20. And that's when he raised the temple in three days. Well, and that's and that's probably another thing to note is from the very beginning. So let me let me fit this in with what happened with Mary. Mary, hey, why don't you do something there? I don't want. And I think it's striking. Jesus intends for his center stepping onto the stage, grabbing all the attention, to be this, not the wedding, because we know it, back in John two. If the, we'll look at this next week. While he was in Jerusalem, many Jews believed in him, seeing the signs he was doing. So apparently, while he's in Jerusalem, he's also doing other miracles. We don't know which ones they are, but it's enough to draw attention to people. So this is how he's going to begin his messianic ministry publicly. This is his Messiah coming out party, if, if you'd have it. Um, and <clears throat> it's announcing from the very beginning he came to die. I mean, again, we, we get this, but... The, his disciples didn't get this. But in Jesus' mind, he's come to destroy this temple and build it up in three days. I just think that's really cool. Like From the very beginning, he gets what his mission is. I've come to die and raise up again on the third day. And so in his very first public appearance, he, no one gets it. It goes over the heads of the Jews. It goes over the heads of the disciples. But it's recorded in Scripture, and we hear that. From the very beginning, he's on point. He's on mission. There's not the slightest bit of wriggle room to, to read the gospel and think the cross was some tragic mistake. From from the very opening of his mouth here, it's, that's what I've come to do. 